Good morning and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now are three exciting exhibitions, Bill Cunningham Facades, The Black Fives, which examines pioneering, pioneering African-American basketball teams in New York and the U.S. from the early 1900s through 1950, and Homefront and Battlefield, Quilts and Context. In the Civil War, if you haven't seen them yet, we invite you to return. They're wonderful. And I always like to ask how many members do we have with us in the audience? Put on my glasses, a lot of members. Thank you all for being our members and being with us so often. If you're not a member, we invite you to join. You get free admission to the museum, great discounts on most of our public programs, and we have staff to help sign you up after the program. And so at this time, I ask everyone who has a cell phone or an electronic device to please turn it off for the duration of the program. Today's program, Neptune, the Allied Invasion of Europe and the D-Day Landings, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Additionally, I want to recognize and thank New York Historical Society trustee, Russell Penoyer, who is with us today, and all the Chairman's Council members with us this morning for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. The program this morning will last an hour, about an hour and a half, and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics in the aisles, and we ask that you do this so that the speaker on stage, everyone in the audience, and everyone in the greater world can hear you because it will be podcast on our website. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with Craig Simons, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. So we are thrilled to welcome Craig Simons back to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Simons is Professor of History Emeritus at the United States Naval Academy, where he taught for more than 30 years. A leading Civil War and Naval historian, Dr. Simons won the Lincoln Prize in 2009 for his book, Lincoln and His Admirals, and the Theodore and Franklin D. Roosevelt Naval History Prize in 2005 for Decision at Sea, Five Naval Battles That Shaped American History. The author or editor of over 25 books, his newest title is Neptune, The Allied Invasion of Europe and the D-Day Landings. And yesterday, Dr. Simon served as the MC for the 70th anniversary commemoration of D-Day at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. Featured guests included Susan Eisenhower and Elliot Roosevelt III. So now, please join me in welcoming Craig Simons. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I'm honored that you are uh, foregoing the beautiful day outside to be with us uh, here for this discussion of D-Day. If you're not D-Dayed out from all the uh, television coverage yesterday of the 70th anniversary, I'm wondering, are there any World War II veterans in the audience, if you would raise your hand? Thank you, sir. D-Day, of course, is very much part of the national consciousness these days, as well it should be, yesterday in particular. Um, 
even if you missed the coverage of that, most, most of you have probably seen that uh, opening 20-minute clip from Steven Spielberg's film, Saving Private Ryan, that features the landing on Omaha Beach, which I think is the, the image that stays mostly in our minds when we think of D-Day, what, what image is created. It's one of the most memorable scenes, I think, in all of uh, cinematic history. Um, inspires both horror at the character of the war itself, and particularly on that morning, and uh, admiration for the men who were willing to endure that. Um, like most great historic events, though, it's one with a long backstory. And in a way, it's that backstory I particularly want to focus on this morning. We can trace its origins back all the way to Pearl Harbor Day on December 7, 1941. And in fact, even before that, to May of 1940, when the British Expeditionary Force was compelled to evacuate the beaches at Dunkirk uh, after being pinned up against the channel by the German Blitzkrieg through Belgium and France. Because it was in May of 1940 that the British initially, and eventually, of course, the Americans as well, began to think about how and where and particularly when the Western Allies might be able to re-enter the continent. But before that could happen, if indeed it could happen at all, uh, the Allies first had to recruit the armies, train the men, build the planes, the tanks, the ships, especially the ships that would carry the men across the ocean and then across the channel. Um, in fact, shipbuilding turned out to be one of the critical bottlenecks, not only for the operation in northern France that we know of as D-Day, but in the war itself. Um, ships were needed, of course, to transport the men across the ocean, to keep them supplied, not only with food and fuel and ammunition, but also, since it's an American army, with Coca-Cola and Hershey bars and Chesterfield cigarettes. More ships, very specially designed ships, had to be created that could carry them across the channel to land on a defended beach. Uh, and then, of course, still more ships, thousands of them, were needed to conduct a war almost exactly halfway around the world against the Japanese at the same time. One of the things we tend to forget in our compartmentation of the Second World War is that the landings in northern France on D-Day took place within two weeks of the major Allied offensive, Marine Corps offensive, against Saipan in the Pacific. So to do both of those things at the same time required overwhelming uh, logistical support. In short, the story of D-Day is not just that iconic moment that Spielberg depicts and that most of us remember when the bow ramp splashes into the surf and the teenage boys charge out onto that sand and gravel to meet their fate. It is also the years of planning and building and training as well as the landing. And that's the story I want to share with you this morning. It falls rather naturally into three parts uh, at the war colleges uh, still today. Uh, operations are broken down into strategic planning, logistic support, and then operational execution. Um, collectively, all of this, all of the strategic planning, all of the logistic preparation, all of the training, 
the transportation across the channel, and the landing itself was called Operation Neptune. Now, the broader term that encompassed the entire campaign was Operation Overlord. But Neptune focused particularly on the naval aspects of that campaign. Let's start with the strategic planning question. Just how did the Anglo-American allies come to make this decision? Um, you know, there's all this talk about a special relationship uh, between the United States and Britain. And I think a lot of that is justified. This is where it was born, in the cauldron of war. But despite all the talks of a common heritage, a more or less common language, uh, and certainly a common foe, the Allied partnership was marked uh, by disagreement and tense and often even bitter uh, negotiations. I'm going to show you a photograph here. They say a photo is worth a thousand words. I'm convinced this one's worth at least 2,000. Uh, I'm going to spend maybe more than that talking about it here this morning. You all know those two guys in front. That's FDR on the left flashing his famous campaign smile. Uh, from the very beginning of the war, from September of 1939, Roosevelt had supported Britain in its unequal contest with Nazi Germany. And he did that not just with words and language and speeches and radio chats. He did it with supplies and equipment, stretching uh, the law, arguably even the Constitution, to make sure that the British got what they needed to survive. And he did all that at great political risk. We think of FDR as being a politician at heart, maybe even the quintessential American politician. Um, but he accepted a great deal of political risk in adopting this course. He did not do what Woodrow Wilson did and say, let us all be neutral in thought as well as in deed when the First World War broke out. Oh, no. He was absolutely four square behind the British. And in spite of the neutrality laws that had been passed in the 1930s by an isolationist Congress, Roosevelt was going to do everything he could to support Great Britain. Popular spokesmen like Charles Lindbergh, uh, most Republicans, most clerics, even FDR's ambassador to the court of St. James in London, uh, Patrick Kennedy, father of the president, all opposed him in this policy. And they did so in part because they believed it was putting the United States at some risk. They did so in part because they believed it was a violation of the neutrality laws. And they did it in part because they were convinced, many of them were convinced, that Hitler was going to win this thing. And that when he did, all those supplies, all that equipment that we had sent to Britain would end up in Hitler's control anyway. FDR bet that Britain would hold out. And he was determined to do all that he could to make sure that it did. He convinced a majority of Americans, mostly through those fireside chats, that Britain's survival was essential to American security. And he got his way on almost all of these issues, including uh, the famous destroyer deal whereby the United States supplied Great Britain with 50 old four-stack destroyers from the First World War in exchange for long-term leases on British bases, mostly in the Caribbean. And critically, through Lend-Lease, the program that allowed Britain to survive, though frankly just barely, through those cold, dark years of 1940 and 1941. Now, to FDR's left, to the right of the picture as you look at it, 
That, of course, is Winston Spencer Churchill with his sort of impish grin. The gravel-voiced survivor of a thousand parliamentary debates and the determined foe of what he always called Nazism, as if the root of that word was not Nazi but nausea. Churchill was grateful for all the help that Roosevelt sent him, but what he really wanted, of course, was American belligerency. He wanted the United States in the war. He wanted not just American money and American equipment. Essential as that was, he wanted American manpower, too. So that throughout their relationship, um, even before Pearl Harbor, Churchill was always the supplicant, asking for aid, asking for support, coming hat in hand to the American president. And Roosevelt was the one with the wealth and the power. He's the rich uncle uh, who has the power of the gift in his pocket. This photograph of them was taken in August of 1941. That's still four months before Pearl Harbor. Uh, they are on board a British battleship, HMS Prince of Wales, which is located in Argentia Harbor off the south coast of Newfoundland. Uh, just as an aside, though no one in this photograph or anywhere else knew it at the time, this ship, the pride of the Royal Navy, which Churchill had ridden across the Atlantic, particularly to impress Roosevelt as much as he could with the power of the Royal Navy, Four months later would be sunk by the Japanese off the coast of Malaya uh, in an air attack staged out of uh, French Indochina. To arrange this meeting, by the way, between the two heads of state, uh, FDR uh, had done something that I think would be absolutely impossible today. He sneaked away from Washington, D.C. under the guise of going on a fishing trip off into the Atlantic and then secretly boarded an American cruiser at night and headed up to Newfoundland fooling not only the press, which he did, but the Secret Service as well. You can imagine that today, the, president, the Secret Service not knowing where the president was. At the time of this photograph, Roosevelt still hoped the United States might be able to limit its role in the war, then raging not only in the Atlantic, but also by now, in August of 41, along the Eastern Front, as Hitler has invaded the Soviet Union, he still hoped to limit American participation in that war to being what he famously called the arsenal of democracy. That if the United States could continue through Lend-Lease and other devices to supply the British Empire and its commonwealths with the materials of war, the tools of war, the British, the Australians, the New Zealanders, and the Canadians with Russian assistance, could maybe win this thing. And that hope had become more realistic after what in hindsight is obviously the greatest mistake of the Second World War by any individual, and that is Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union in June of 1941, before making sure that the British had been defeated. That led to the thought in the minds of both of these guys that with American money and Russian blood, and British grit, Hitler might still be defeated without the United States having to go to war. Of course, all of that changed four months later after Pearl Harbor. Churchill was thrilled to have the United States at last as a partner, as a full ally, 
But he feared that because of the character of the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, an unannounced sneak attack, as we like to call it, on a Sunday morning with the two nations at peace, that American public opinion would compel Roosevelt, after all, who was answerable in the end to the American public, would compel Roosevelt to adopt a strategy of focusing American attention on Japan first. Well, he needn't have worried about it, at least not that. Because as it happened in the months between this photograph and Pearl Harbor, in the four months between August and December of 1941, the United States had reoriented its national military strategy to a new policy based on the assumption that Hitler's Germany, not Japan, not Italy, not any other power on earth, but Hitler's Germany was by far the most serious threat to the world and to the United States, and that Germany would have to be defeated before the United States could turn its attention on Japan. And interestingly enough, it was an American admiral, who's also in this photograph, here he is, this is Harold Betty Stark. You know, in those days, uh, every midshipman who went through the Naval Academy got uh, burdened with a nickname, usually imposed on him as a plebe during plebe summer. Uh, Harold Stark went to the Naval Academy and an upperclassman stopped him one day, braced him up, things that still happen, and said, uh, Stark, eh? Of course, his name is on his shirt. Are you related to General Stark? Sir, I don't know who General Stark is, sir. You don't know? Well, let me tell you, young man, that General Stark fought the Battle of Bennington during the American Revolution, and he was so determined upon victory that he yelled out, we will win today or Betty Stark will be a widow. Well, that's almost true. Uh, the upperclassmen should have had a better history teacher. It wasn't me. Um, because General Stark's widow was actually named Molly. <laughs> Never mind. The upperclassmen ordered Harold Stark that every time he passed an upperclassman, he had to shout out, we will win today or Betty Stark will be a widow. Which he did all that plebe summer and as a result became Betty Stark for the rest of his life. <laughs> and he even signed his memos to the president, Betty. <laughs> but it's Betty Stark who came up with this revision to American strategy. He drafted a memo, a famous memo in September, known to historians as the Plan Dog Memo. He laid out four alternatives, A, B, C, D. D being his preferred option, dog being then, the phonetic equivalent, now of course delta, but in those days dog. Uh, and the plan was for the United States to devote all of its military assets in case of war to the defeat of Germany before turning on Japan at all, holding just on the defensive in the Pacific. Well, Churchill was much relieved to hear that after December of 1941. On the other hand, he also learned that the Americans took the view that since Germany was to be the primary and proximate target of Allied efforts, the American attitude was, well, let's do that right now, immediately, today, well, all right, tomorrow. This, I think, is an American characteristic. We are not, and I don't think I'm letting any cats out of the bag here, we are not, as a rule, a patient people. What we want we want at once. The British view to this was, delighted as they were to have Americans as full partners, they wanted to kind of tamp down this enthusiasm 
just a bit. Well, yes, that's all well and good, they replied in effect, but after all, we do have to be practical about these things. The British preference was to delay any invasion of northern France until the Nazi empire was tottering. I mean, Churchill's notion was that the uh, oppressed peoples of Europe would rise up, the Russians would bleed the Germans white, uh, peripheral attacks and bombing from the air would so weaken the Nazi empire that when the time came, all that would be necessary would be to kick in the door and the whole rotten structure would come crashing down. This difference in views between British and American planners about the role of the Allied invasion turned into a running dispute that lasted most of two years. The principal advocate of an early Allied landing in Europe was the Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall. He's here too. Here he is. Wait a minute. Maybe. There he is. George Marshall, listening somewhat benignly to the American Chief of Naval Operations, Ernie King, in the darker uniform there. King was used to people listening to him. King was a little bit skeptical of this Germany first strategy. Not officially, of course. He was a lifelong professional. He would never contradict the national policy of the United States, not directly. But King was also determined to make sure that the Japanese did not have an opportunity to consolidate those conquests that they were making um, throughout the Western Pacific in the first six months of the war. Uh, not just the Philippines and Singapore, but uh, Burma and Malaya and even into the Indian Ocean, uh, uh, an empire, a maritime empire that encompassed more than a third of the globe. Should the Japanese become entrenched in that maritime empire, winkling them out from all those defensive positions would take more time and more money and more blood. So yes, Germany first, that's a fine idea, but let's not let those Japanese dig in. That was King's policy. So Marshall had to convince not only Churchill and of course Roosevelt and the British that an early invasion of Europe was a good idea. He had to make sure that the Navy and particularly Ernie King were on board as well. I'll draw your attention to this fellow right here. Look at that expression. He's watching these two, right? He said, what are they talking about? And he well might ask, uh, that's Sir John Dill. John Dill was uh, just recently, prior to this photograph, the chief of the Imperial General Staff. He'd now been replaced by Alan Brooke, who would hold that position for the rest of the war. But John Dill uh, was brought by Churchill to this meeting and subsequent meetings with the Americans, and I think deserves an awful lot of credit uh, as one of the important individuals who acted as a kind of liaison between the English-speaking allies. Uh, like Marshall, Dill was an underappreciated player in the contriving of grand strategy uh, in the Second World War. He was able to smooth over many of the bumpy patches between the two allies. He was willing to talk truth to power. He would talk back even to Churchill if necessary in order to represent what was practical. And he would explain patiently and quietly to the Americans why sometimes what they wanted to do was not practical. Alas, Dill died before he could observe the fruits of all his labor. He died in 1944, 
and is one of only four individuals to be buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery, despite being a British officer. Now, not pictured in this photograph, of course, are the Russians, who at this time in August of 1941 were back on their heels, uh, dying by the tens of thousands, taking on the brunt of the war against the German Wehrmacht. The Russians, of course, were positively frantic for the Anglo-Americans to open a second front in France, take some of the pressure off of them. Stalin then and subsequently believed, and frankly with some justification, that Churchill in particular was willing to fight the Germans to the very last Russian. <laughs> or as Churchill might have put it, to fight the Nazis to the last communist. Now, before I leave this slide and move on to the rest of the story, there's two more characters I want to point out. They're over here on the side. The fellow with his hands behind his back is Harry Hopkins. Hopkins would prove as important in holding together the Anglo-American alliance as Dill, and arguably even more so. Hopkins was Roosevelt's most trusted personal advisor, second only to Eleanor herself, and not by much. He was, alas, a sickly wraith of a man. You get some sense of that in this photograph. He had survived stomach cancer, but had most of his stomach and half of his intestines cut out of him and could not process food properly. He lost weight regularly, smoked all day long, weighed less than 100 pounds, and always seemed to be within just moments of dropping over dead. Uh, that didn't keep him from working 20-hour days. And Roosevelt exploited him terribly, sending him as his personal representative on missions around the world routinely. And of course, transatlantic flights in those days were quite an adventure. You know, nobody's, not even peanuts and saltines on those trips, uh, nothing. Um, the workload probably killed him, uh, though unlike Dill, he at least survived the war. He died in January of 1946 at the age of 55. Now, the handsome fellow who's whispering in his ear is Averill Harriman, who FDR had sent to London to coordinate Lend-Lease aid. Churchill may or may not, it's not clear, may or may not have been aware that Averill Harriman uh, was carrying on a torrid uh, love affair with Churchill's 21-year-old daughter, Pamela, Harriman being 50 years old at this time, and married, as was Pamela, uh, Pamela was married to Churchill's only son, Randolph, who was then with the British Army in Egypt. I will note that decades later, after everyone else in this photograph was dead, the 80-year-old Averill and 51-year-old Pamela would marry. And decades after that, Pamela Harriman would become John Kennedy's choice as American ambassador to France. So, it's a remarkable photograph that I think deserved all the time I spent on it. There's our cast of characters, or at least most of them, um, in the long, pointed, and as I mentioned, occasionally bitter negotiations between the Americans and the British. Not so much about whether to invade, or even so much about where to invade. That was pretty clear, too, as I'll point out in a few minutes. But especially when. The where was almost self-evident. It had to be northern France. Northern France was the only part of the German-occupied Europe where Allied air bases in Britain could provide 
uh, air cover for a landing operation. Uh, there was some back and forth about whether the Pas de Calais opposite Dover or the Bay of the Seine near Normandy was a better landing site, but that it would be northern France was clear from the start. The when was far more problematical. As I noted, the Americans ready to go almost immediately, the British much less so. It was George Marshall uh, who presented the first serious written plan for an invasion. He called for an Anglo-American landing in France in May, May 1st, actually May 1st, 1943. The British expressed general, if somewhat muted, support for this. I mean, this is still 16 months away at the time it was proposed. The British thought was, well, a lot can happen in 16 months. We'll see. But that's a fine idea, Americans. Let's, by all means, get ready for that. The more immediate question was, though, if we adopt this plan, which they did, formally at least, what are we going to do in the meantime? We're not just going to sit around for 16 months while Germans kill Russians and Russians kill Germans, much as Churchill might like that notion. Something had to be done. The impatience of the American people, the inertia of war, something had to be done. Well, of course, Ernie King says, well, I have an idea. You know, we can always go into the Pacific. But, of course, Roosevelt says, no, once we start down that road, that just turns the entire grand strategy upside down. We've got to find a way to get American troops into the European theater as soon as possible, preferably this year, 1942. Well, you can't invade northern France in 1942. You don't have the wherewithal. In my book, I, I use an analogy, which I'll, I'll use here which is that the, the British were kind of like the parent, the adult in the house, where the six-year-old wants to know why he can't drive the car. He says, well, you're f you don't know how, and your feet don't touch the pedals. But the British couldn't say that to the Americans. They can't say, well, you, you don't know what you're doing, and you don't have the military strength to do it even if you did, because the British, remember, are the supplicants here. So they said, well, they're, they're the logistical and and, and what." Well, Churchill had a suggestion. He had a solution. He had an idea. Yes, there has to be something done in 1942, but the only practical thing we can do is invade North Africa. Well, Marshall thought this was a terrible idea. You know, there are no Germans in French North Africa. Not a one. There are Germans further east fighting the British Eighth Army in Egypt, but there are no Germans in French North Africa. French North Africa is a colony of Vichy France. Vichy France in 1942 was technically a neutral. Now, yes, they're under the thumb of the Nazis, and so there's an asterisk by that designation. But nevertheless, why is invading France different from the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor? Maybe we should tell them it's coming. Well, now, wait a minute. If you tell them it's coming, you know, the word might leak out, and that puts American lives at risk. No, no, we must have an invasion of German, not German-occupied, of Vichy France and North Africa. Marshall opposed this because he was convinced once you start into the Mediterranean, that's going to create a vortex, a black hole for drawing reinforcements and supplies and equipment and material and energy and ideas into the Mediterranean, 
which will have the practical long-term effect of delaying the essential and necessary invasion of northern France. Let's not do it. Well, have you got a better idea? No. So, North Africa it was. And Marshall turned out to be right. It was a black hole for resources. In fact, it led from North Africa to Sicily, to Italy, almost inevitably, as this invasion of Europe from what Churchill liked to call the soft underbelly developed, despite a policy that said, no, 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 the most important thing is to invade northern France. And all of us, of course, annoyed is not a strong enough word, uh, upset, concerned uh, the Russians, who believed, again, arguably with some justification, that they were really carrying the brunt of this whole war, even in Italy. The Allies fought a total of 10 German divisions. On the Russian front, there were 260 German divisions. And the Russian attitude was, you're not pulling your weight. So, uh, Marshall was right. But, you know, Churchill was right, too, because the extended campaign in North Africa demonstrated more clearly than any British argument could have done that the Anglo-American allies, and let's be honest, quite frankly, the Americans, were simply not ready for the kind of effort that would have been necessary to conquer German-occupied northern France. The landings in Morocco had been haphazard. The campaign into Tunisia was marked with blunders and reversals, none of them more humiliating than the American defeat at Kasserine Pass in February of 1943. And all that demonstrated how unready the Americans were to take on the Wehrmacht, certainly in 1942 and perhaps even in 1943. Besides, even if the strategic decision makers could have agreed to try it in 1943, there's the second element of this program, and that's the logistical one. You have to have the tools of war to do it. And that brings us to the whole logistical question. Even before Pearl Harbor, the United States had embarked on a uh, truly historic shipbuilding program. In 1941, this is before the war, 1941, the United States produced just over a million tons of new construction shipping. That was a record and very impressive. Never mind. In February of 1942, in the wake of Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt called in the head of the U.S. Maritime Commission and told him he wanted them to build 8 million tons of shipping that year and 10 million tons in 1943. The numbers are staggering. I know today in our lifetime we hear the word million and billion on the evening news every night and it's, oh, that's pocket change. These are staggering numbers. The British could not believe the Americans would even say them with a straight face. But somehow... It got done. And when it did, Roosevelt raised the bar again. His idea seemed to be, well, I set this impossibly high standard and you made it, so clearly I didn't set that bar high enough. Now what I want is 24 million tons of shipping. To meet these astonishing goals, workers at shipyards like this one, which is the Henry J. Kaiser Shipyard in Portland, Oregon, worked quite literally around the clock. This photo shows workers on the swing shift, that's the 4 p.m. 
to midnight shift, lining up to replace the day shift workers. They, in turn, would be replaced by the night shift, which went on at midnight and worked till 8 a.m. under giant arc lights that lit up the whole shipyard. The welding machines were never turned off. Never. They were simply passed from hand to hand as the shifts changed. By the way, a little perspective here, the workers depicted in this photograph earned 50 cents an hour, which uh, if you deduct $1.40 from their weekly pay envelope for what were then called old age benefits, the new Social Security program, yielded them $18.60 for a 40-hour week. But of course, most of them worked overtime as well. By the way, there's a sign over this entrance gate, and when I, I put this uh, slide together, I looked at it and said, they're not going to be able to see that sign, so I'm going to blow it up, and I think you can read what it says. But the shipbuilding program was not simply a matter of manpower. It was also a matter of raw materials. The United States was indeed uh, the great arsenal of democracy, but even its resources were not infinite. One bottleneck was steel plate. Pressed by the demands of war, the United States steel mills increased steel production between 1941 and 1943 by 300%. But shipbuilding increased by 1,500%. So the American War Production Board had to decide which programs got preferred access to this scarce an essential commodity. No ship could be built without it, so it's a decision between battleships, aircraft carriers, escorts for the convoys. Where are we going to put our resources? The principal rivals for these resources were two ship types that all too often get overlooked in considerations of uh, World War II operations, and they are the Liberty ships, those big tankers, that carried the cargoes and the supplies that kept the armies and our allies in the war, and something called the landing ship tank, best known by its abbreviations as the LST. LST is kind of an ugly looking ship, the ugly ducking, duckling of the naval war, I suppose. It's in effect a big self-propelled box shaped, as one sailor said, like a bathtub. In its big barn-like hold, it could carry 20 Sherman tanks, 30 heavy trucks, the famous deuce and a half, or 2,100 tons of dry cargo, plus as many as 40 Jeeps or light trucks on its weather deck, two levels. Because it had a flat bottom, it could steam right up onto a beach, open big cupboard-like doors in its bow, and the vehicles could drive right out of the hold and onto the beach. A case can be made, and I'll try to make it here, that the LST was the most important ship of the Second World War. Yet few loved it or admired it. You don't see many LSTs in those Victory at Sea film clips, uh, a lot of which were shown yesterday on TV. Battleships firing or planes going off carriers, far more photogenic than these things. To begin with, uh, the LST was not a particularly fun ship to ride. Uh, with that blunt bow to accommodate the cupboard doors and the flat bottom so they could go up onto the beach, uh, they wallowed terribly 
even in a calm sea, and in any kind of a chop, they just thumped up and down on those waves, each time coming down with a, a jarring crack. The sailors said their teeth would snap together every time that happened until they were afraid they'd, they'd fracture entirely and fall right out of their mouth. Uh, one of the things that uh, I did to prepare this book was go down and read all of the oral histories from the sailors who participated in the D-Day landings that are housed at the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Spending a week in New Orleans is tough duty, but somebody's got to do it. Um, of all of those, one of my favorites came from a sailor who was on an LST who wrote this. Some ships go over the waves. Some of them go through the waves. Some go under the waves. But an LST just clubs them to death. But despite all that, LSTs are absolutely essential to any amphibious landing in the age of armored warfare. And World War II was the age of armored warfare. You can't conduct an amphibious landing without armor. And that means tanks. And getting tanks ashore from an afloat fleet requires a specially designed vessel just like this. And they became the industrial and logistical bottleneck of the entire Second World War. There's three reasons why this was the case. First, as I mentioned, they had to compete for resources with other ship types. Um, Liberty ships, to be sure, but also destroyers that had to guard the Liberty ships on their way across the ocean. If you build Liberty ships and don't have escorts to protect them from the U-boats, that does you no good, but if you build the escorts and have nothing to escort, well, that's not much good either. So in a kind of chicken and egg dilemma, we had to decide where to put the resources. And they had to compete for space on the nation's scarce building ways. There's a finite number of places where large ocean-going vessels could be built. And because these had a relatively shallow draft, most of them were built inland on America's rivers, built sideways to the river. This is on the Ohio. This is the Neville Shipyard just downriver from Pittsburgh, where this ship was launched. Uh, the Neville Shipyard ended up building 142 of these ships uh, during World War II. And then, of course, they had to navigate all the way down the Ohio to the Mississippi, and from the Mississippi down to New Orleans, where they were equipped and fitted out, uh, and then uh, put to sea into the Gulf of Mexico. A second problem was that once it became obvious that a 1943 invasion of northern France was not going to be possible, due largely to our investment in the Mediterranean, many of the shipyards that had been dedicated to the construction of LSTs were retooled to build escorts to help win the Battle of the Atlantic. 1943 was kind of a decisive year for fighting the uh, control of the Atlantic against the U-boats. And by the time the priority was shifted back from destroyers to LSTs, it was almost too late. Because changing the product of a shipyard is not a matter of just throwing a switch. An LST required 30,000 component parts. And all of those parts had to be manufactured and fabricated elsewhere and then brought together in this lengthy logistic pipeline to be assembled at the various shipyards. So that delay in changing over meant that, quite frankly, they just never caught up with demand. And then finally, the LST production program was slowed by arguments over what to do with them once they were built. I mean, the Navy needed them for the war in the Pacific. The troops that went ashore at Tarawa and Kwajalein and Saipan 
and later Iwo Jima and Okinawa, all of those campaigns needed LSTs, and a lot of them. Allied forces in the Mediterranean needed them to land at Sicily, at Italy, and then to make the end run around the German lines at Anzio. And of course there were the losses to the German U-boats as those that were committed to the uh, war in uh, England, the cross-channel attack, uh, were attacked by U-boats during that crossing. You know, LST had a top speed of only about 10 knots, going full out, 10 knots. And sailors on board said, you know LST really stands for, don't you? Large, slow target. So the result of all of this was that by the spring of 1944, there were simply not enough LSTs in British waters to ensure a margin of safety for an invasion of France. And then it got worse. Throughout the winter of 1944 and, and into the spring, winter of 43-44 and into the spring of 44, the hundreds of thousands of American GIs that had been ripped from their Brooklyn tenements and their Iowa farms and transported across the Atlantic and deposited in this strange little country of Britain uh, engaged in constant training exercises, a lot of them taking place at a beach on the south coast of England known as Slapton Sands. Uh, this is an image of soldiers going ashore from what was called a Higgins boat, landing craft, vehicle, and personnel, uh, onto Slapton Sands. You see the high ground in the background there in the Devon countryside. It looks kind of like, you know, wind in the willows territory, these beautiful little uh, thatched roof homes and meadows, very pretty. In April of 1944, the Allies planned a full-scale rehearsal for the invasion of France, now only a month away. They were going to call it Exercise Tiger. On April, 19, April 18th, the day the, the uh, rehearsal exercise got underway from Portsmouth, uh, the German commander of a squadron of small, fast, PT-boat-like craft known as Schnellbooten, or S-boats, or E-boats, like this, got underway from Cherbourg Harbor across the channel for a routine patrol, and in the middle of the night, that patrol encountered a convoy of eight fully loaded American LSTs headed for Slapton Sands and Exercise Tiger. Each of those had 20 tanks, 30 trucks, 40 jeeps, and 350 men on board. And in a confused battle in pitch blackness, the torpedo boat sank two of those LSTs, struck a third, which nearly sunk, but managed almost unbelievably to make it back into port looking like that. 700 Americans were killed in this rehearsal mishap, as it was labeled. That's more men than were killed in the invasion of Utah Beach, which was their target during the invasion. So this was a devastating blow to Allied planning, and it was kept secret for more than a decade until well after the war was over. Nobody even knew that it had happened. The survivors from that were put into a hospital and kept under quarantine so they wouldn't talk about it. But what concerned Eisenhower almost as much was the loss of those three LSTs. 
at a time when the Allies had none to spare. He sent a frantic telegram across the ocean, I need three more LSTs immediately. Well, there were none to be had, and even if there were, they couldn't have gotten to England in time for the invasion, and so the invasion was postponed again from May 1st to June 5th, 1944. And even then, the scarcity of LSTs was a critical concern of the high command throughout the entire invasion. Now there's the third phase. The third phase, of course, is the operational one. We have made the decision through the strategic planning. We've assembled nearly all of the logistic wherewithal necessary to make it happen. Now can we do it? The traditional explanation of Allied success on D-Day is that the Armada was so great that the Germans were simply overwhelmed by the power and the size of it. And that's mostly true. Counting the smaller landing craft like that Higgins boat, more than 6,000 vessels took part in this. Depends on how you count uh, 4,300 large ocean-going vessels plus the smaller landing craft, but I'll take the bigger number, 6,000 ships and change. By far the biggest maritime force ever assembled on the planet. But that did not guarantee success, and as it happened, the landings were indeed a very near-run thing. Indeed, at Omaha Beach in particular, the scene of that famous clip from Saving Private Ryan, the attackers were very nearly driven into the sea. At Omaha Beach, the Germans had 81 machine gun emplacements on high ground that curved in a crescent shape around that beach so that not only could they fire directly down onto the beach, but also from both flanks, and those German machine guns, almost unbelievably, some of them could fire at a rate of 2,000 bullets per second. You can imagine that. I can't. The invading soldiers found the shoreline not only a killing ground from that, but also crowded with mined obstructions, and soon enough with wrecked and burning landing craft and dead or dying men. The first wave went ashore at 6.40 a.m. and ran almost at once into a hurricane of violence. This is one of the few photographs of D-Day. I'm not sure this is the first wave. This is one of those Robert Capo photos. This may be the second or third wave coming ashore, but it gives you some sense. You can see the high ground uh, through the smoke in the distance there where the Germans were located. By 8.30 that morning, a little under two hours, it was so bad that the beachmaster on Omaha Beach sent out uh, a request to the forces offshore, do not send any more waves ashore. Uh, the beachfront is too crowded and littered with wrecked and dead and dying. There's no room for them. They can't get off the beach. We're trapped. Less than two hours after it had begun, the invasion of Omaha Beach, at least, had ground to a halt. Now what saved it was a handful, about a dozen, Allied destroyers, most of them American and a few British. The official mission of the destroyers on the D-Day was to guard the landing armada from any possible attack by German U-boats or the Schnellbooten, the fast boats, uh, like I showed you earlier. But with the crisis on Omaha Beach at about 8.30, 8.45, a dozen or so destroyers 
were ordered to provide close-in fire support. We have no photographs of that. This is actually a drawing that was made by a Coast Guardsman, and I want to make sure I give full credit to the fact that the Coast Guard, every bit as much as the Navy, was involved in this. Coast Guard officers drove the landing craft, Coast Guard crews uh, manned the uh, landing craft infantry uh, that participated in D-Day. So it's not just the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy, it's also the U.S. Coast Guard. Those destroyers responded with enthusiasm, in fact, perhaps almost too much enthusiasm. They steamed in toward the beach at full speed in excess of 20 knots into very shallow water. The water shoals off Omaha Beach at a foot of drop for every 50 yards of vertical ground. So it's very shallow, quite a distance out from the beach. And to get in close enough to provide close gunfire support, the destroyers that drew 13 feet had to go in till, until there was maybe an inch or perhaps two inches under their hull. They were so close to the beach, they were being hit by rifle fire from the beachfront. Um, as one soldier recalled, the destroyers just came right in there, popped over onto their side, and blasted those German gun emplacements. Afterward, Omar Bradley himself wrote in his official report, the Navy saved our hides. And what made the difference here is that having the destroyers so close to the beach, the communication, most of it not involving radios, because the radios almost all got wrecked during the landings, but rather by signals that had to be improvised on the scene. The few Allied tanks that had gotten ashore would fire at a particular location on the bluff, and the destroyer commanders would note that target and send their own five-inch shells into that target. So by providing close-in tactical fire support, the destroyers allowed enough of a window for those soldiers pinned down on Omaha Beach that they could raise their heads from the sand and think about getting off that beach. None of this should take any credit away from the soldiers who did it, um, who ascended those bluffs finally, many of them climbing hand over hand while Germans dropped grenades onto them from above. But they would have been the first to acknowledge that the conquest of Omaha Beach was, in the end, a joint effort. And even having seized the beach, it wasn't over yet, because the key to Allied success on D-Day and in the weeks that followed was not just that critical several hours on June 6, 1944. It was the long-term commitment to building up that force. D-Day was not a rush ashore by 100,000 men. It was a constant flow of waves, 15 minutes apart all day on the 6th, and then all day on the 7th, and the 8th, and the 9th, and the 10th. And then, of course, all those men had to be supplied with beans and bullets. And to do that, the Allies needed a functioning seaport. And because of that, the plan called for the early seizure of Cherbourg Harbor. This is an aerial shot of Cherbourg at the end of the Cotentin Peninsula, just to the right, as we would look at a map of Utah Beach. It was the initial target of those troops that went ashore on June 6th and 7th and 8th. But it took them two weeks to get it. Uh, and the Nazis, with their usual destructive efficiency, had, in those two weeks, pretty much wrecked all of the harbor facilities, sown 130 mines in the harbor, smashed up all the piers, blew up the buildings, did everything they could to make the harbor unusable, which it was for more than a month 
So supplies couldn't come in that way. We had a backup plan. This is an aerial shot of an artificial harbor uh, known as a mulberry. This is the one off the British beaches. I'm going to draw your attention down here first. These units that you can see uh, poking their heads above the sea level, those are called Phoenix units. They had been built over 10 months prior to the invasion. They're concrete units, hollow concrete units with reinforced steel, each of them as large as a six-story office building. They were built in harbors from Scotland all the way around to the Thames estuary and then towed across the channel and sunk in place as a barrier, as a breakwater, if you would. These are Liberty ships. Here are four Liberty ships inside the breakwater offloading in the smaller vessels. But here's the key. These are Lobnitz pierheads. These are the Lobnitz piers. Ships could come in, tie up at the pier, and tanks and jeeps and trucks could drive down this floating pier known as a whale, all the way into the beach. It's an ingenious, an extravagant, complicated, astonishing accomplishment if it worked. The problem was that uh, three days after the first of them was assembled off Omaha Beach, a storm came ripping down the channel and wrecked it, smashed it to pieces, so that the mulberry off Omaha Beach had to be completely dismantled. The, the salvageable pieces of it were sent over to the British Mulberry, which did continue to function. But now, not only is Cherbourg unavailable, but so too is one of the two artificial piers into which so much in, uh, material had been invested to go on. And so now, the only thing we have to fall back on to supply those troops ashore and bring in reinforcements are those LSTs. And so what happened over the next month was that the LSTs came into Omaha Beach, as you see them here, bringing ashore the men, the tanks, the trucks, and supplies you needed to exploit the beachhead, and then carrying away the wounded and the prisoners, sometimes, interestingly, in the same ship. You imagine a big open hold, and this is where the German POWs are, and this is where the wounded Americans, British, and Canadians are. Interesting dynamic. And so efficiently did the LSTs perform this mission that the amount of materiel and vehicles and manpower coming ashore on Omaha Beach actually increased over the amount that was brought in when the Mulberry was functioning. The one millionth, one millionth Allied soldier came ashore appropriately enough on the 4th of July, 1944. That's less than a month later. A million men, plus all their equipment, all their supplies, the equivalent of bringing, for, uh, bringing ashore a fully equipped division on each beach every day for a month. And three weeks after that, the Allies executed Operation Cobra, breaking out of their enclave in Normandy and Brittany to race across the French countryside toward Paris, which fell on August 25th. Now the key to this remarkable success, and it was unquestionably remarkable, was, of course, in large part, the stunning courage and determination of the Allied soldiers. Uh, but also, it was the 
compromise over strategic decision-making, the lessons that were learned in North Africa and Sicily and Italy, and perhaps above all, the ability of American shipyards and factories to turn out unprecedented numbers of guns and planes and tanks and especially ships. And even then, D-Day might not have resulted in an Allied triumph, but for the willingness of the men on the scene to adjust, to adapt to the unforeseen circumstances they encountered at Utah Beach, where they were landed in the wrong place, at Omaha Beach, where the resistance was far more fierce than the planners expected, and the men were able to adapt to those circumstances. Those teenage sailors and soldiers who drove the landing craft onto those crowded beaches, who crossed the beach despite that merciless machine gun fire to gain the toehold that was the first step on the road to Berlin. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Right in front, yes, sir. Oh, wait. Microphone. My error. And we'll, we'll go side to side one at a time. So we'll start here. Yes, sir. I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. Um, it's a fascinating story about the destroyers, what they did. And, and my question is, did they have to do that because the, the big guns on the outer ships were ineffective in destroying the, uh, the uh, situations with the, with the German army? That's a great question. And the short answer is yes. But let me give you the longer answer. The longer answer is that in the planning for the D-Day landings, the Allied decision makers had to confront the question of whether a prolonged, heavy naval bombardment we had three battleships off the American beaches, four battleships off the British beaches. They had 14 and 15-inch guns that could lob 1,940-pound shells 20 miles inland. What firepower? Why don't we begin that bombardment and just blast them to smithereens before the men go ashore? We had learned already in the Pacific Ocean that prolonged naval gunfire support on a target beach worked. At Tarawa, it took three days. At Saipan, it took six days. At Okinawa, it took 21 days. So we knew that an extended bombardment was a good idea. Here's the problem. In the Pacific, you're attacking an island, and you have complete control of access to that island. So the Japanese cannot send in any more reinforcements. They're going to defend that island with the troops that are already there. In Europe, you start bombarding that beach, you know, two or three, four hours go by. The Germans, even the Germans, would figure this out. This is the target. And those reinforcements would begin to make the move to the beachhead. So in order to, to have surprise and to maintain enough momentum and initiative on the target beach, the idea was we'll hit them really hard, but in a very short time frame. One hour. We'll start bombarding at 5, 5.15 in the morning. We'll shell them ferociously for one hour with everything we got. We'll bring in... 2,000 aircraft will bomb them to pieces very short, very fast, and then amidst the smoke and the debris, will rush ashore and seize the ground. Well, the problem with that is, as powerful as those shells were, uh, the reinforced concrete bunkers have to be hit almost exactly in the, in the slit uh, for them to have any effect at all. And the result was they damaged almost none of the German heavy artillery pieces or machine gun positions in either the aerial bombardment or the naval gunfire. So yes, it was ineffective 
uh, because it was so short, but it was short on purpose to sustain the surprise. And that's why the destroyers, with their tactical support, firing only 5-inch shells as opposed to these 14 and 15-inch shells, nevertheless proved to be more effective in support of the troops on the beach. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I'm Ann Sweezy. I'm a member. Um, I am. What a story. Was there significant participation by the French resistance in the various phases of this effort? There was. Uh, the French resistance was, again, how soon do you tell them in advance? This is a big problem. Uh, if, if you tell them a week before, is there a danger that someone will be captured and tortured and the news will leak out? So they got some advance notice, but not a lot, less than 24 hours. But a code word was sent out that they were to break transportation and communication links between the inland and the beach. And the French resistance did go out and blow up railroad trains and cut telegraph wires. And of course, the bombers had also been executing what was called a transportation strategy, hitting the nexus of railroad uh, connections. So that the idea was, once the Germans did figure it out, ah, it is Normandy, send the panzer groups to reinforce, they would find it very difficult to do because the transportation had been cut. And the French resistance was absolutely critical in that. And I want to add to that, by the way, that we talk about the Americans and the British and the French. There were 81,000 Americans, 71,000 British, and 60,000 Canadians, the initial assault force. But there was also an inter-allied command group that included French, Belgian, Dutch, and Norwegian troops that went ashore on D-Day. And on D-Day plus one, an entire uh, French combat brigade went ashore and fought in the capture of Wiesterham. So not only the French resistance, but also French, uh, the French Free Army participated. Thank you. Hi, Craig. Hi. Uh, one of the things I, you know, yesterday we had Vladimir Putin on the stand with our president. And I asked, the question is, at this time, June 6, 1944, what were, the Russians obviously were fighting the Germans. What was the coordination of D-Day with the Russian commanders? What was occurring on that day with the Russians and Germans? Were they doing anything special to, to draw troops away from France? Yes. Again, that's the short answer. Now, here's the long answer. The long answer is that, of course, the Russians had been eager for this second front to open since 1942. In fact, in 1942, Molotov came to the White House, sat down with Roosevelt, very awkward conversation. Neither spoke the other language, neither trusted the other's interpreter. So they each, you know, Molotov would say something, his interpreter would say to this interpreter, then this interpreter would say it. And so, so this conversation was quite difficult. But in that conversation, Roosevelt had promised Molotov that the Allies would open a second front against the Germans in 1942. What he had in mind was North Africa. The Russian attitude was, that doesn't count. No Germans in North Africa. Now, we ended up fighting some Germans, to be sure. And then, well, it's all right, but we, 1943, really, truly, honest to God, this time we mean it, 1943, didn't happen. So now it's going to be May 1st, 1944. We mean it this time. Bank it. May 1st, 1940. Well, no, it's not really going to be May 1st. It's going to be June 5th. Well, it isn't June 5th. It's going to be June 6th. So to a certain extent, Stalin, the idea was, yes, there would be coordination. As the Western allies, the Anglo-American allies invaded France from the sea, the Russians would launch a big counteroffensive along the Eastern Front. And that was in, in, the, in, the, in readiness, in preparation. They were ready to go here. Um, but Stalin kind of waited. You know, he said, yeah, they're landing in Normandy. Yeah, how many? Are they still landing in Normandy? Is, is that really going on? 
And by now it's you know, mid-June. And he said, well, you know what? We're going to do this June 22nd. Now, well, how long is it? That's a couple of weeks later. But two reasons. One is they're really, 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 really going to do it this time. But also June 22nd is the anniversary of the date that Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. June 22nd, 1940. Now June 22nd, 1944, four years later, here it comes. And they launch what's called Operation Bagration. And we put a million men ashore in a month in Normandy. Pretty impressive. The Germans attacked with 2.4 million men and over 5,000 heavy tanks all on the same day across a front 1,000 miles wide. So they did their part, absolutely. And, and that, just to follow up a bit on yesterday's event. I actually was the MC, as Dale mentioned, uh, in, uh, on the National Mall, which was a very moving ceremony as well. Uh, so I didn't get to see much of the coverage of what happened on Normandy Beach. But I think uh, that was perhaps an opportunity for us all to remember that, yes, there's been a Cold War rivalry, and yes, Putin is not a trustworthy character. Uh, but on the other hand, in memory of the 20 million Russians who died in the Second World War, uh, we should acknowledge that they more than did their part. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, at the conclusion of the uh, campaign in North Africa, was there any consideration, or serious consideration, of invasion through uh, southern France, through the Mediterranean, possibly through Spain, as opposed to going into Sicily and Italy. Ultimately. Yes, there was. The, the, the key conference after this was the Trident Conference in Quebec, and there was a lot of discussion there about after Husky, which was uh, the invasion of Sicily. And then Italy. as soon as we invaded Sicily, the Italians uh, overthrew Mussolini, voted him out of office. You wouldn't think you could do that to a dictator, but they did, and put in uh, uh, Pietro Badoglio as the new prime minister. And he immediately, the very first day, sent out feelers secretly to, you know, we're willing to change sides. Well, this, of course, led to, well, then we should go to Italy, the, particularly Churchill. The Americans were said, look, we went with you on North Africa. We went with you on Sicily. It's time to go back to North Africa. But the idea of southern France was something Churchill kept on the table for a long time. Churchill almost seemed to be obsessed with going anywhere except North Africa. I mean, he wanted to invade Sardinia. He wanted to invade Greece. He wanted to invade the Isle of Rhodes, Crete, the Dodecanese Islands in the Aegean. He had a long list of these things, all of which he thought we should do before we ever went into northern France. And I think in part it's because uh, he wanted to make sure the Germans were really worn down to a nubbin before they, we launched this invasion. So that was on the books for a long time. And what's interesting is then when at uh, Tehran, at the conference in Tehran, late in 1943, when they told Stalin, well, here's what we're planning to do. We're planning to invade northern France. We're going to go ahead and go into Italy, but northern France as well. Uh, and we're thinking about maybe southern France. Stalin says, that's a good idea. You should do that. You should do southern France. Our initial notion was that it would be a diversion. And the Americans had resisted it. Oh, this is Churchill doing another one of his, you know, anywhere but northern France moves. But once Stalin says, I think that's a good idea, because now you've got a pincers going against the Germans in France, the Americans said, great, we'll do it. We'll, we'll put two divisions ashore in southern France. The same day, June 6th, well, as it turned out to be, the same day as the D-Day landings. That was the plan. Now, what derailed that plan was, guess what? Not enough LSTs. We just didn't have enough LSTs to do it simultaneously. So we took the LSTs out of the Mediterranean brought them back to England for D-Day, 
and then after D-Day was over, sent them back to the Mediterranean to conduct a landing in southern France, initially called Operation um, Anvil, and you can see why, Hammer Anvil, right? This is, but Churchill insisted that the name be changed to Dragoon, because he was dragooned into it. He didn't really want it. That may be mythological, uh, that, the origin of that name, but it was called Operation Dragoon, and in August, of 1944, the same week that Paris fell, the Allies did make an invasion of southern France. Uh, the first French army and the seventh American army went ashore and marched up the Rhone River Valley and joined up at Paris and then turned east for Berlin. Thank you. Sir. Um, I was on a cruiser heavily damaged Iwo Jima by guns in caves at the base of Suribachi. The Germans had some big guns. Did they try to attack any of our capital ships? Or did the U-boats try to go after a couple of ships? They did. The Germans did have large coastal artillery, well protected. Their bunkers, 13 inches thick of reinforced concrete with rebar uh, all throughout. Uh, and, and most, because it was so strong, most of them are still there. How many have been to Normandy? You've seen, uh, most of you then, have seen those positions are still extant. I mean, probably when our civilization collapses, they'll find this. Some archaeologist from a future society will find these things. They're very... Tough. And they had some very big guns in there. They had 9.4-inch uh, rifled uh, coastal artillery. And the, the biggest and best of them were four 11-inch guns off Cherbourg um, at uh, Battery Hamburg, it was called. And the reason they were particularly good, not only were they the biggest with the longest range, they could actually outrange Allied shipboard guns. In addition, they were manned by the Kriegsmarine. German Navy was manning those guns. That's why they were so good. Right. Uh, so, so yes, there was a lot of damage from coastal artillery. Uh, there's, for a while, we thought the USS Corey, the first destroyer to be sunk uh, off Utah Beach, we thought had been hit by artillery. That's the way the official report reads. Subsequently, uh, it's become evident that that was, in fact, a mine. The mines were the most serious anti-ship weapon, the most effective anti-ship weapon that Germans had, but they did employ uh, coastal artillery as well, and they did uh, use that artillery against both cruisers and battleships, both off Omaha Beach and Sword Beach, uh, as well as off uh, Cherbourg. Thank they you. did. Thank you. Sir. Uh, thank you for a wonderful talk, but I want to ask you about the planning for the few days following uh, the beach, uh, the 6th. Uh, I am told that we lost more casualties in the hedgerows, the unique uh, hedges that France has. Was there any planning about that, or was that totally uh, lost in the, in the planning? Uh, I want to make a general comment about that, and then I'll make a specific comment. There was planning on everything. This was planned to within an inch of its life. The activity of every sailor and every soldier, this is a slight exaggeration, but not much, for every minute of the entire day on D-Day was planned out, and for the subsequent days and weeks and months. So yes, a lot of effort, a lot of energy had gone into the planning of exactly how this would work itself out. And you might say, well, if they knew the hedgerows were there and were going to be difficult, why did they select this beach as a target? Because even with that, given the other characteristics of the beach, especially as compared to the Pas de Calais, this still seemed like the best place to go. So they did plan for it. Uh, on the, and the other general comment I will make, and for all those who are veterans in the audience will have heard this during their service, and that is, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. 
You can have the most detailed, perfect plan ever written. The plan for Neptune was 1,100 pages long, four inches thick, single space, typed on both sides. Uh, two minutes in, throw it out the door, because now you're making it up as you go. One of the reasons that Slapton Sands was chosen as the target beach is because behind Slapton Sands, you see that rising high ground, which was crisscrossed uh, not by, essentially by hedgerows. These are stone walls built between farmers' fields that over the centuries had developed this large growth all over them. Uh, so it looked like, I mentioned wind in the willows during my talk, it looked like one of those checkerboard fields with the, the green field and then the, the fences. It was a little bit like the Bocage country. And this was chosen as the site uh, for these rehearsals because of that. Not only did they rehearse landing on the beach, they rehearsed moving inland as far as Oakhampton, which is 20 miles inland, working their way through the narrow roads and around the hedges to be ready for the Bocage country. But of course, the Bocage created difficulties anyway. Uh, and that, that was just something we had to fight our way through. Thank you. Sir. Yes, once the destroyers are taking these targets under fire with five inch, why not provide the coordinates and fire spotting to the battleships and use the 14 and 15 inch on the same targets? Um, the primary reason is that on June 6th, at that critical 8.30 to 10 o'clock time frame, when we were actively preparing to give up on Omaha Beach and redirect subsequent waves into Utah Beach and just call Omaha a loss, um, there were no radios, virtually no radios on Omaha Beach. The, the ships that came, the landing craft, they're not ships, the landing craft that came ashore and crashed and wrecked, smashed by fire, running into the beach, pounded by the heavy waves on that surf, all the radios were soaked. There was no communication between the shore and the ships until about 1.30 in the afternoon. But couldn't the destroyers provide the coordinates? They could not. Um, because the destroyers were making it up on the fly. They don't know the coordinates ashore. They don't have a grid that shows where, where those coordinates are. They're following the arc of the tank fire into certain positions, or they're just looking, there's a bunch of bushes. I bet there's a gun in there. Bam, 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 bam. Uh, and that's, that's not, you know, you can't say, you know, 36. Now, by th that afternoon, by 4 o'clock, you have some radios ashore, you have a little bit of plane spotting going on, and you're able to do, units on the shore would say, you know, fire for a range, and they'd say 400 yards long, 400 yards right, and then essentially walk them in on it. And by then, the heavy ships weren't doing exactly that. Uh, the 14-inch guns and the 8-inch guns on the cruisers in particular. 14-inch guns, they're so far offshore, it's, it, we claim to be able to drop that into a circle the size of a basketball court, but that's problematical. But the 8-inch guns on the cruisers um, could and did follow coordinates by radio reports from troops in the field, even beyond line of sight. But not until the afternoon. That morning, we were making it up on the fly. Okay? Sir? In the spring of 1944, when was the last serious raising within the Allied uh, High Command that there just aren't going to be enough LSTs and we should think about adjourning for a while. It's, it's a running discussion. It begins as early as uh, late 1943, when they're trying to adjust the building priorities. 
You know, uh, one constituency says we have to have more destroyers for the Battle of Atlantic. Another one says we have to have aircraft carriers to fight the Japanese. We have to have Liberty ships to carry the supplies. We have to have LSTs. LSTs became what was known as the urgent priority, the highest priority in the shipbuilding construction you could have early in 1944. But there's that time lag between making the decision and retooling the yards in a way that makes, makes it possible. And not really until March of 1944 did the number of LSTs produced begin to exceed uh, what was perceived as, as the need. And they were still coming across the ocean the first week of June with novice crews and untested ships at the very last minute. So, as I say, it's not any one moment when they say, gee, I don't know if we can do this. If there was such a moment, it was the one when Eisenhower said, we can't do both Anvil and Overlord. Can't do it. Not enough LSTs. We either have to drop one or the other, and it's not going to be Overlord. And that's when the southern invasion was postponed until August. So if there's a particular moment when there's a, an, a recognition, an admission, we don't have enough LSTs, it's the moment when Anvil was canceled. All right? Thank you. And I think we're done. So, Dale? Thank you.